Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret stories and little-known details about your favorite music, movies, TV shows, and more. We are your Bostonians of behind-the-scenes drama, your Carlton Fisks of facts, your janitors of just really good anecdotes, here to explore the little idiosyncrasies that make up our pop culture landscape. My name is Jordan Runtog. <laughs> and I'm Gordon Wood. No, uh, no, I'm Alex Heigl. I'm Alex Heigl. And today we are diving deep into Goodwill Hunting, a movie near and dear to my heart as a native Boston kid. But before we go any further, I want to pause for a moment to recognize a milestone and take care of a little housekeeping. This is our 100th episode, which seems simultaneously very hard to believe and also very easy to believe. What do you think, Heigl? <laughs> I agree. Well, time has lost all meaning since 2020. But uh, yeah, I mean, what is what is time anymore between uh, other than the periods of wakefulness that are occasionally marked by dinner? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm duly honored. <laughs> I mean, here's a time stat. I think it would take, because I haven't crunched the numbers exactly, but I think it would take a week without sleep to listen to all of the episodes we've done so far. Oh. Without sleep is sort of a very common theme in the TMI story, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, especially when we we're doing three of these a week. Yeah, yeah, that was that was that was not great. Um, in any event, folks, we both want to thank you for spending this time with us so far, and to everyone who has reached out and said kind words to us or left reviews. It touches us in a way that I can hardly describe. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. I am just so grateful to all these new friends and just to all who've listened. I mean, the gift of your time is so precious. So I hope you continue to enjoy, though slightly less frequently. For the foreseeable future, we're going to be moving to one episode a week rather than two. You may have noticed in the last couple months, the releases were a little less consistent. To borrow a phrase from today's topic, it's not your fault. <laughs> the power. <laughs> Don't do that. Not, not you. Not, not you. you. <laughs> um, the powers that be at iHeart have some other projects that they want us working on, and it came to everyone's attention that we do better work when we are able to sleep. 
Um, so if I okay, let me just level with everybody for a moment. The kind folks at iHeart initially wanted this show to be about fifteen to twenty minutes an episode, <laughs> which is why we were doing three of these a week when were we, we first ever started. so young. Yeah, it, it never. <laughs> I think the shortest we ever got was maybe forty minutes. So very quickly within the first couple months, uh, they realized that these were going to run long, and so we cut it down to two episodes a week to save our sanity. So now. We're going to go to one. But hey, if you want more TMI, it really helps to do all the usual things that podcast hosts are always telling you to do. Leave a review or a star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or just tell a friend about us. The more listeners we have, the more friends we have, the longer we can keep this going. But here's to 100 more episodes. Thank you all so much for all the kind words and just being along with us for this ride. It's been so much fun. What he said. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just have it. I didn't know you were going to do this. I oh, would have prepared it. remarks. I would have prepared <laughs> oh, remarks. I'm sorry, this wasn't in the document when I looked at it earlier. Oh, you I'm son s- of a. Oh. Uh, you're, you're better. You're better off Ooh, the dome anyway. Run dog. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I I hear from most people from on Twitter, and it's it's such a delight to uh, have people reach out and and like kind of our mission statement where we were talking about just getting people excited about stuff. Uh, yeah, it's such yeah. a hearing people's anecdotes about like, Oh, I remember that. And like, this is so cool. And did you know this? And, and just people engaging with us is so it's been such a kind of welcome inversion of my, most of my career, which was to write a lot and, and things that did a lot of traffic, but I rarely heard from people about them. Like, unless you so, got something wrong in which yes, case you're just um, get yes, a nasty. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, usually from uh, Harvey Weinstein's rep. Oh, uh, yeah, on brand for today. Uh, Har- topic, yeah. yeah, Harvey, Harvey, Sean Penn, Scientology. Uh, yeah, Scientology. Um, <laughs> is my NDA up? Can I talk about any <laughs> of that stuff yet? Anyway, yeah, everyone's been so so nice on on Twitter, and and it's it's great reading the uh, reviews, and you know, honestly, I just get to hang out with Jordan uh, every week and having people say nice things about it and all of the bits, all my silly little bits <laughs> and impressions. It's really just the cherry on top. Uh, so yeah, thank you, everyone. A hundred episodes. Good lord. You know, in a way, it's very fitting that we're doing Goodwill Hunting today as a story about uh, friendship. It's a story that explores elements of male friendship that I think often go unspoken. You know, fears, heartbreak, hopes, weaknesses, loss, ambition, dreams, and family. So, in a way, it's a perfect celebration. Well, you and I share, Heigl. <laughs> and earlier this morning, we had a conversation about... Uh, uh, guy in a hardcore band delivering a monologue about <laughs> manually masturbating horses on stage so you can take that out if you want remember when i said it goes unspoken <laughs> that continues to go unspoken anyhow <sighs> back to the topic at hand goodwill hunting if you were born in the boston metro area there are two things that you're hardwired to be intensely proud of the red Sox and Goodwill Hunting, or specifically Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. They are just the pinnacle of the local boys made good, and their personal story, at least to me as a Boston kid, is better than any Hollywood drama. And their real-life story, to me, is inextricably linked with the touching friendship at the heart of their movie. It's just so good. It's romantic in every sense of the word, and it's filled with this wonderful, redemptive arc. And I personally was surrounded by a group of very artistically-minded 
showbiz hopeful kids at my high school. So the story of these two childhood friends making it all the way to Hollywood and the Oscars gave us something to shoot for, which was really special as a, you know, as a high schooler. So, but more than just that, this movie has incredible performances by Robin Williams and Minnie Driver, gorgeous songs by Elliot Smith, and wonderful understated direction by Gus Van Sant, taking him from the art house to the mainstream. You have stirring dramatic speeches, endlessly quotable moments. I love it. Hago, what do you think of Goodwill Hunting? I didn't come to this movie until later, but the biggest thing I took away from it was Elliot Smith. <laughs> mm, yeah. Not the accents? Like I don't... <laughs> well, yeah, the accents, but... No, my Boston accent didn't really crystallize until I saw The Departed. Um... <laughs> My boy's wicked smart. I can't. I can't do a Boston accent in my life. I. It's funny. Yeah, it's funny because despite watching a good number of movies set in Boston with like really honking Boston accents, <laughs> it's mostly just The Departed. Um, <laughs> well, wait. What's the other one that Leo was in? I'm a duly appointed federal marshal. It's not uh, Shutter Island, is it? Oh, it is Shutter Island. Okay. All I can think of is, I mean, it's it's either it's either Departed or it's uh, um, Mayor Quimby from yeah, May. yeah, 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 yeah. Say chowder. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's so. I mean, I, I guess we'll talk about this. Like, I grew up farther enough west that it was unusual when I would hear that. Like, I it, yeah. it, it was not something that was ever like normalized to me, and I would always privately be like. Yeah, I mean, I never got the I never got the Pittsburgh or the Philly accent until I went to those places. Because what's the Pittsburgh? The, I know Philly. Dan Dan Tan, gonna go Dan Tan, get some pop. It's almost Midwest. It's like okay. flat Midwest. If you're going oh, Dan Tan to the Crick, it's like almost it's almost like Chicago Midwest. Oh, uh, with a little bit of Philly. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I can kind of hear it now. <laughs> Although, I mean, th this movie does have just like a number of hilarious. Like like all the quotable stuff. The script is obviously great, but um, yeah, my buddies in in college, I used to do the uh, like when they when they go to have like the fight, and Casey Affleck is in like the back seat, and he he just he he doesn't want to give. He just goes, but we we got snacks. <laughs> <laughs> that, that just became like a, a running bit with us. It was just and anytime anyone wanted to do something, <laughs> food food came first. But we got snacks. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, this movie introduced me to Elliot Smith, who's one of my, uh, favorite songwriters. Um, I spent a lot of, um, I don't know if I want to say happy hours. <laughs> Can you have happy hours listening to Elliot Smith? But, uh, a lot of, certainly a lot of hours, um, with that man's wonderful voice and, and his incredible artistry. And, uh, so if, if nothing else, I mean, the first time I ever saw him was in that, awkward white suit on the at the oscars yeah and then when i finally saw the movie i was like oh all these songs are incredible what is this and then a long period of staring moon-eyed out the window <laughs> with 345 on the window pan yeah pining pining <laughs> oh that was your pining music oh yeah my my pining music was ben folds Ugh. <laughs> The other good thing about this movie is that, I mean, it has Robin Williams doing his It's Not Your Fault line, which, I mean, who doesn't want to have Robin Williams wrapping his arms around you telling you that it's not your fault? Like, one of the most, like, affecting scenes, I think, of yeah. any movie that we've discussed. I mean, Robin Williams is basically the patron saint of TMI. I feel like we've talked about him in, like, five yeah, different movies. He might, be, he might be the, yeah, honestly. <laughs> I'm trying to think of if there's any other, someone else's come up 
uh, with so many great stories and just universal positivity. But um, yeah, we should probably go easy on the Robin, but but no, I don't want to. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a more cynical view is this is this kind of where he's like his maybe like a crinkly eyed uh, sincerity maybe started to get into Patch Adams um, territory, like maudlin, a little more of the maudlin side, but it is so good. Did I ever tell you my mom went to the uh, Patch Adams premiere and, and met Robin Williams there? No. No, yeah, they got, uh, <laughs> they, they talked for a bit and they got a picture together and he signed her, uh, her ticket to the, the premiere and, uh, you know, I mean, for all of Robin Williams' comedic genius and, and many gifts, anybody who takes time to make your mom feel special, that's a, there's a special place in heaven for you, my dude, so I will always, uh, extra Robin cred for me, yeah. Very cool guy. Did she like the movie? Anyhow, without further ado, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't mind it. I didn't, I thought it was okay. I thought, it, yeah, I didn't mind Patch Adams. I saw it with a very forgiving eye because I was like, oh my God, I feel like connected to this. My mom went to the premiere. Sure. I just remember Donner, party of 50. Yeah. <laughs> having to have that joke explained to me. So I take it doing Patch Adams on here is not going to fly. <laughs> No. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, without further ado, from the location scouting trip that nearly got Robin Williams killed to the early draft of the script that was a spy thriller to the time Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt nearly played the leads, here is everything you didn't know about Goodwill Hunting. The tale of Goodwill Hunting kicks off with one of the most adorable origin stories in Hollywood history. It all began in my home city of Boston, Massachusetts. The state's name being an old Algonquin word meaning very hard to spell. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Matt Damon and Ben Affleck lived two blocks from one another in the Boston neighborhood of Cambridge, so close that Ben could see into Matt's bedroom from his own. Their moms were friends and introduced them when Matt was 10 and Ben was 8 years old, and they hit it off right away. Matt Damon later recalled the moment when he knew Ben was, quote, a good friend to have during a 2019 appearance on Conan O'Brien. Apparently, Ben came to his rescue during a fight. And the trouble began when Matt and a group of neighborhood kids went to play football in the Cambridge Common during a snow day at some point back in the mid-80s. And Matt said, I mouthed off to a kid that I knew. He was like six foot six. I might have been five foot three at the time. I'd scored on him or something. I don't know. I said something, but he came for me. And it was right then that little five foot two Ben Affleck tackled this dude off me. Like out of <laughs> nowhere. I was a junior and he was a freshman and he tackled this kid off me literally at the risk of his own life. I remember that was a big moment. Like this guy will put himself in a really bad spot for me. That's a good friend. <laughs> I love that. Matt and Ben went to the same school. The interestingly named Cambridge Ringe and Latin School, where they bonded over a shared love of acting, which was very unusual for their peer group. What is Ringe? Ringe? I don't know. Ringe is a town in uh, New Hampshire, but beyond that, I'm not sure what Ringe and Latin is. You can't teach Ringe. You gotta be born with it. There's a lot of a lot of the public schools in uh, in Boston are the like Roxbury Latin. There's always Latin in the name for some reason. Never really understood that. Matt Damon's brother later told People magazine that Matt and Ben quote weren't heartthrobs by any means. They weren't even considered cool kids. They were drama geeks. And Ben later told Parade magazine that before he met Matt, 
acting was a solo activity where I'd just go off and do something, act in a little TV show or something, and no one understood it. All of a sudden, I have this friend, Matt, and he gets it, and he wants to do it, and he thinks it's interesting and wants to talk about it. So soon, both of us are doing it. And in fact, as teenagers in 1988, they actually both appeared as extras in the Fenway Park scene for the film Field of Dreams, which is interesting, uh, thus cementing their lifelong association with the Boston Red Sox. And my favorite, is there a Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, like Benifer equivalent, Bat, call him Bat? <laughs> Afflin? Men, men. Matt Def, and Defleck? Ben, Matt, Def, no, Defleck? Yeah, Matt doesn't really. I guess no. we have to say Ben and Matt. Yeah. Uh, my favorite Ben and Matt Red Sox story uh, went down during the filming of Gone Girl, which was delayed significantly after director David Fincher wanted Ben Affleck's character to wear a hat with the New York Yankees logo, who are famously the Red Sox rivals, and Ben refused. And Ben later explained in an interview with the New York Times. I said, David, I love you. I would do anything for you, but I will not wear a Yankees hat. I just can't. I can't wear it because it's going to become a thing, David. I will never hear the end of it. I just can't do it. And I couldn't put it on my head. And Ben would characterize this tiff as, quote, a legitimate fight that resulted <laughs> in a standoff between them that shut down production on Gone Girl for four days. The matter was solved ultimately with a Mets hat, which was deemed an appropriate compromise because everyone from Boston knows that Mets fans are secret Red Sox fans because they hate the Yankees just as much. But back to Matt and Ben's childhood friendship in the early 80s. At first, Ben, though younger, was the veteran performer. He was a child actor who'd appeared in a 1979 indie film called Dark End of the Street, which was directed by a family friend. And as a seven-year-old, he'd developed a crush on the 19-year-old playing his older sister, which I think has <laughs> shades of the Brady Bunch in there. And as a 12-year-old, he appeared in the 1984 PBS educational series, The Voyage of Mimi, and also a Burger King commercial, along with a few other odds and ends. And Ben introduced Matt to his agent, who took Matt on as a client, and Matt made his feature film debut in 1988's Mystic Pizza, with a single line of dialogue as the little brother of the rich kid who's trying to date Julia Roberts. And as students, Matt and Ben would have what they referred to as, quote, business lunches in their high school cafeteria. <laughs> and I find this adorable. They socked away money in a joint bank account to fund trips down to Manhattan for auditions. And hilariously, Ben would apparently sweet talk the teller at his local bank into withdrawing money from his college savings account that his mother had been depositing into, which is cute, but also seems like kind of illegal. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> mm. Well, let's talk about Ben's upbringing for a second, because he was sort of on a socioeconomic fault line, which is a topic that gets explored in Goodwill Hunting. Uh, according to Ben's father, the neighborhood where they grew up was, quote, kind of rough. His dad was an aspiring playwright who worked a series of odd jobs. He was a janitor at Harvard, funnily enough, um, but spent much of his free time backstage at the prestigious theater company of Boston. His mother was a Radcliffe-educated elementary school teacher who worked in the Boston public school system. So they were a very well-educated, intellectual, artistic family living in a neighborhood that didn't particularly encourage art. Harvard, MIT, they attract people who are able to pay the enormous tuition costs of those schools, but they are themselves located in the more working-class areas of Boston. Am I going to get hit with a brick for this, for reading? 
<laughs> Jordan wrote this, not me. Uh, no, I mean, I, the, the neighborhoods, I mean, like most neighborhoods in the Boston area and any urban center have been like increasingly more gentrified in the last, you know, in the yeah, 25 sure. years since Goodwill Hunting came out in it or 40 years since the Afflecks and the Damons were growing up there. Um, sure. But yeah, at the time, Cambridge was... Uh, more of a working class place. And I think Matt would later say it caused a lot of friction with the kind of tweedy rich kids that would be coming in from out of state to go to these Ivy League schools. And these feelings intensified and became even thornier in the late 80s when they both went out of college. Matt famously went to Harvard, whereas Ben went to the University of Vermont, dropping out after a single semester. Uh, and he has admitted feeling embarrassed about that. I mean, he later told Rolling Stone, I've always been insecure because I only had a little bit of college and knew a lot of people from fancy schools. All that sort of resentment and goodwill hunting about people who went to college came from me feeling on the fringe. Uh, one of the many articles you uh, you shared to me about this particular topic is the, the unbearable sadness of Ben Affleck <laughs> at BuzzFeed by uh, Anne Helen Peterson. And in that piece, she talks about the word fratty. Uh, something that has dogged Ben Affleck throughout his career. And she says that he always hid that because it, it pointed to a class level that he never achieved. Affleck later told the talk, the idea that I'm this frat guy is odd because I only went to college for one semester. I was never in a fraternity. It speaks to a kind of upper class upbringing that I didn't have. Matt Damon has also had a lot to say about these complicated class dynamics, um, which is... <laughs> Illustrated in a pretty screenwriting 101 way when Will and his buds uh, uh, literally fight guys from Harvard and MIT. Uh, in an interview with the journalist and critic Tom Schoen, he said, I think for us, coming from Cambridge and living in a neighborhood that was very much dwarfed by Harvard and MIT, we would look at these other people, these students who came in every September, and think, it's our city, not yours. All of those issues were very much part of our lives and all the kids we knew and grew up with. And then I went to Harvard and suddenly I was friends with all these people and not seeing them as some strong man antagonist. Perfectly wonderful people too. So what does that mean? All that stuff bottled up in Goodwill Hunting. Ben's father was a janitor at Harvard. In fact, his girlfriend at the time was the janitor in my dorm in my freshman year, which made it even more bizarre. So when on Friday nights the kid would get too drunk and throw up all over the place, I knew who was going to clean it up and it was someone I considered a friend. That kind of shift came out, I think, in the soup of Goodwill Hunting. Interesting, right? Yeah, it is. Uh, and in 2000, both of them, uh, Matt, Ben and Matt, spoke at a rally in support of raising the living wage of campus employees. Um, Affleck has also narrated a 2002 documentary called Occupation, which chronicled a sit-in organized by the Harvard Living Wage Campaign. Um, and some, <laughs> some film scholars have uh, likened the class conflicts in Goodwill Hunting to the tensions between Catholics and Protestants in uh, Boston and also Ireland, <laughs> a piece published in 2012 in the Journal of Comparative Poetics claims that Will and his South Boston friends play the role of Irish Catholics while the students at Harvard and MIT represent the English-bred upper-class Protestants. How do you feel about that? Who wrote that? Probably guys that went to Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always think it's funny that uh, Affleck grew up in, or was born in Berkeley, but I don't know that his... He moved to Boston when he was like three or something. He was very young. No, no. I thought he had like rich, like Mayflower family. But it was it was that show, Finding Your Roots, that he was on that he tried to 
pressure them into hiding the fact that his ancestors, his some wing of his family were slave owners. Oh, wow. <laughs> Where does it say he pressured them? Uh, it was an email that came under uh, the, the Sony hack. WikiLeaks released them. Oh, my God. The host of the show, Henry Louis Gates, uh, was writing to the head of Sony Pictures, Michael Linton. He said, for the first time, one of our guests asked us to edit out something about one of his ancestors, the fact that he owned slaves. He literally said, what do we do? And <laughs> Michael Linton was like, you take it out of the segment. I mean, did, did you read any of the... Uh... The that BuzzFeed article I sent you. I think I read it when I came oh, out. Yeah, but no, I didn't reread it. Today. Talks a lot about how like Ben Affleck really had an uncomfortable relationship with his kind of working class upbringing, and was sort of ashamed of it. And when he was dating J Lo, it kind of came out because he was trying to like make her more, you know, in quotes, respectable. And there were even rumors at the time <laughs> that he, like, wanted to run for office. Yeah, it's a really interesting piece that gets into a lot of, like, nuances about his relationship to to class and, you know, race in, in, in the case of J-Lo. It was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I just knew about a lot of his dad stuff, that his dad was, like, drank himself out of their home, <laughs> essentially, and was homeless. I didn't know he was homeless. I knew he moved up to like Ohio or somewhere in California. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he that was where he 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 spent like twelve years getting sober, but before wow. that, he hit rock bottom on the actual streets of Cambridge. Oh Jesus, I didn't know that. Wow. Well, on the topic of highfalutin concepts and over intellectualized papers like that weird goodwill hunting are the Catholics and Protestants thing we just talked about, let's talk about <laughs> Harvard. Ben Affleck did his one semester at the University of Vermont before dropping out and chasing fame in L.A. And Matt almost completed his course of study at Harvard, but he dropped out in his last semester, just 12 credits shy of graduation, in order to also pursue film work. I think he was there for a total of five years because he took a sabbatical to take an acting gig in the movie School Ties, which starred Brendan Fraser and also featured Ben Affleck. But in Matt's fifth and final year at Harvard, he enrolled in a playwriting class. And as he later told Boston Magazine for the 2013 oral history of Good Bull Hunting, the culmination of this playwriting class was to write a one-act play. And I just started writing a movie. So I handed the professor at the end of the semester a 40-odd page document and said, look, I might have failed your class, but this is the first act of something longer. And upon accepting the assignment, Damon's professor, Anthony Kubiak, was very impressed. Later saying that the script was, quote, authentic and real. He added to Boston Magazine, The thing that they always say when you submit a script to an agent is that they read the first page and they read the middle, and they can tell if they want to continue. They can see whether you can capture the human voice and dialogue, and that was all over this work. So Matt dropped out of Harvard after he got a role in the 1993 historical western Geronimo, an American legend, which, despite featuring the likes of Robert Duvall and our beloved Gene Hackman, failed to make Matt Damon a star. And upon arriving in L.A., Matt did the time-honored new-to-L.A. actor-wannabe trope of crashing on his friend's floor, Ben Affleck's floor. But the roles for Matt were not exactly forthcoming. He got two bit parts in movies that also featured Ben Affleck, who had much bigger roles, parts in Glory Days, and also the Kevin Smith movie Chasing Amy. Uh, more on Kevin Smith later. But Ben was doing, I think, marginally better than Ben, because he had the lead role in Kevin Smith's 1995 movie Mall Rats, and also, of course, Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused. I didn't know this, but I recently learned that Ben Affleck beat out Vince Vaughn for his role as O'Banion, the school bully in Dazed and Confused. 
Hmm. Yeah, I didn't really I can see that though. Well, throughout these professional dry spells, the two friends continued to flesh out the script that Matt had begun writing at Harvard. And they would later admit that they did it mostly in an effort to provide themselves with good material for an audition reel, which is pretty clever. Matt Damon later admitted on the Today Show, the script really was born out of frustration with their unemployment. So we just wrote it pretty much out of desperation. And Ben elaborated, the whole thing of Goodwill Hunting was really just to make, at the time, a video cassette that was like an acting reel. Like, we can't get a job to show that we can do interesting stuff, so the whole thing was to have a reel and show casting directors. And so the idea was we'd write these parts for ourselves. That was our ambition. I think we were shocked that the movie even got released. (laughs) It was like, no, we don't have to go to the big studios. We can do it cheaply and get a movie star and we'll make it for a million bucks. Which is not a lot of money in the scheme of movies. So we wrote a movie that's just all interiors and people talking in rooms because it was inexpensive. And a lot of the scenes came about as Matt and Ben just improvising. And there were a lot of scenes where they just switched on a tape recorder and started riffing. And in this early stage, they thought that the professor character would be played by Morgan Freeman in their fantasy casting. And the psychologist character would later be Robin Williams would be played by Robert De Niro. So they would do their best Morgan Freeman and Robert De Niro impressions into this tape player, which Ben I like later reflected was probably really embarrassing in that respect god i hope those tapes are out there i know this is some special feature (laughs) if you were a loved one (laughs) matt damon later told film scouts eventually we maybe came up with a half hour improv out of which we would have maybe 15 seconds that was actually good and we'd play the tape back and say yeah 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 that's it that's the one write that down and maybe a scene would come from that line And then on the rare occasion that one of them would actually have an acting gig, they'd work out pages on the set and fax them back and forth to one another. But this was not the most efficient process. Remember when we talked about Mike Myers writing Austin Powers in like three weeks or John Hughes writing Home Alone in something like 10 days? It wasn't like that for Goodwill Hunting. (laughs) Matt Damon later told Entertainment Tonight, we didn't really understand structure, so we wrote thousands of pages. We'd be like, well, what if this happened? And then we just write different scenes. So we had all these disparate scenes, and then we kind of try to jam them together into something that looked like a movie. And that's <laughs> part of the reason why this movie works so well as a collection of really memorable moments and scenes, you know, from the therapist remembering his late wife to the whole, how about them apples scene to the scene where Chucky tells Will that he'll kill him if he's still hanging around Southie in 20 years. These were two actors who were trying to write a bunch of really dramatic scenes to show off their acting chops for an audition reel. It makes a lot of sense that that was the genesis. Uh, Matt would admit that this very inefficient process put them off screenwriting for another 20 years because, quote, (laughs) we never thought we'd have the time. But what I think is a really cute aside, Matt described the script in the Boston Magazine Oral History as, quote, the first thing we woke up thinking about and the last thing we thought about before going to bed. The script in this early stage wasn't even called Goodwill Hunting. Um, We don't have a working title for it on file. Yeah, I think that they have said in other interviews that they just couldn't come up with a title. (laughs) What would you what would you pitch it? What would you pitch the them apples? Good. I can't come up with a better one than that. We're not riffing. You just, you won. <laughs> uh, ben Affleck told Boston Magazine that they couldn't come up with a title. They were still stuck when it came time to shop the script around. And so instead, uh, they thought of a title that was being used by a friend of theirs, a screenwriter named Derek Bridgman. He was writing his own script called Goodwill Hunting uh, about an African-American kid growing up in the Boston neighborhood of Roxbury. 
And Matt and Ben offered the guy 10 grand if they could sell their script to a studio using his title. And he agreed. And one of the first things that they did after selling their script was to write him a check. So they made good on it. Uh, and they get, also gave a bit part in the movie as an MIT student uh, who asks uh, the Professor Gerald Lambeau the question in class. Still on uh, Skarsgård character. I get all of them confused. I just not Peter the... Sarsgaard. Yes. Not the other. He's not related at all. There's not... the hot one, and then the there, hot one the... is is his Alex son. And Alex Sarsgaard. The creepy is his one. Dad, I think. And then the creepy one is Bill. Oh, and then there's him. two others. Yeah, the guy who was Pennywise in the most recent it. Oh uh, yeah. And then there's two others. Lo and I were just talking about this. I googled them. There's like other Skarsgards, younger ones. Not to be confused with Sarsgard, which I did for a long time. Yeah, same. Okay. Yeah. This has been your your Swedish actor corner. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more too much information after these messages. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who are the risk takers that help reinvent and reimagine the kinds of stories we see on TV? We Disrupt This Broadcast, a brand new podcast from the Peabody Awards and the Center for Media and Social Impact, talks to creators of TV shows like Abbott Elementary, Watchmen, Black Mirror, and Better Things to explore how the most compelling shows and the creative powers behind them are upending the status quo. Listen to We Disrupt This Broadcast now, available where you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Somewhat famously, the original plot of the Goodwill Hunting draft, the first one completed in 94, was uh, considerably different than the you know, sensitive character study that we know today. It was a thriller about uh, an errant math genius from the mean streets of Southie who was on the run from government agents who were trying to force him to work for them, harness his incredible mathematical mind to do evil government things. Which is funny because it's sort of born supremacy and also... <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, Affleck said... 
It was this idea of the brilliant kid and his towny friends where he was special and the government wanted to get their mitts on him. And it had a very Beverly Hills Cop midnight run sensibility where the kids from Boston were giving the NSA the slip all the time. That sounds terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I think the only scene from that entire plot that remained was the bit where he's interviewing with the NSA and gives that whole monologue about how they're, you know, a morally bankrupt organization. The script, though, sparked a four-day bidding war across multiple studios, and ultimately uh, it was acquired by Castle Rock Entertainment, which been uh, co-founded by actor-director Rob Reiner, who directed When Harry Met Sally, Spinal Tap, The Princess Bride, A Few Good Men. He'd also done Stephen King adaptations. He'd done Misery and Stand By Me. Castle Rock is, in fact, named after the uh, one of the prominent locations in the Stephen King universe. Which itself, I think, was borrowed from Lord of the Flies, right? <laughs> I didn't know that. This is elevating the sucks to your ass mark count in this episode <laughs> to one. <laughs> Uh, and considering Matt and Ben were then in their 20s, the $675,000 script fee that they picked up for it was quite the payday. Their credit was so bad at the time that they had trouble getting an apartment rented. Uh, and eventually they were reduced to bringing along a Daily Variety article and telling their landlord, we don't have credit, but these are this is us. We're these guys. We just got paid this. <laughs> Look, it's in the paper. <laughs> And it worked because it was L.A. <laughs> ben later said, we thought it would take care of us for 20 years. So we rented nicer apartments and each bought Jeep Cherokees. And we were completely broke in a year. It's <laughs> uh, a very Ben Affleck thing is blowing his Goodwill hunting payday on a Jeep Grand Cherokee. <laughs> well, he had other vices that we now know about. Video games and Subway. That's we'll talk about. <laughs> no, he's a gambling addict, right? <laughs> I'm not making that up. Uh, was he an addict? I, I know we got thrown out well, of casinos for counting cards. I mean, yeah. I, well, I don't know. <laughs> let's, let's, let's leave Ben Affleck alone. You don't get thrown out of a casino if you're not good at it. Well, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. We can't. I was just. <laughs> we can't hurt Ben Affleck any more than he does. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Um, Rob Reiner who uh, just from that short CV, you could infer clearly knows a thing or two about a, a movie that'll make a lot of money. And after reading an early version of Goodwill Hunting, he got the sense that there were uh, a, a, two movies struggling for the soul of, of <laughs> Will. Uh, the, a political spy thriller plot and a smaller, more intimate story about a troubled young math genius, his relationship with his therapist. He left it to Matt and Ben to decide which angle to go with, and that has made all the difference. <laughs> I think he strongly encouraged them to go with like the psychologist angle. I love that there's an alternate universe somewhere where they just been, became like meathead action guys because they pursued the lunkhead spy thriller movie. I mean, Ben Affleck kind of did for a while, I feel like. Or, yeah, yeah. It was really that Daredevil. Bait. Oh, God. Pearl Harbor. Whatever the hell the Batman thing is. Yeah, yeah. He makes weird choices, man. Oh my god, that Daredevil movie. Daredevil is one of my favorites. I remember seeing really? that and just being like, oh yeah, not the movie, the comics, but just oh. being like, what possessed him to think he could do this? <laughs> Alcohol? Anyway, uh, so Matt and Ben took Reiner's advice. They cut all the spy stuff. 
Uh, and this was scary for them because it meant cutting about 60 pages or half of your, your average screenplay and uh, sent them right back to the drawing board. And there have been persistent rumors uh, suggesting that based on this origin story and their age at the time, that uh, the depth and sensitivity of the Goodwill Hunting screenplay indicated the hand of someone else. Um, More mature. The name being floated would be William Goldman, iconic screenwriter William Goldman, who won an Academy Award for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, All the President's Men. He also wrote Marathon Man, Stepford Wives, Chaplin. Uh, he wrote Princess Bride um, and the adaptation for Misery, both of which were directed by Rob Reiner, so that you see where we're going with this. Uh, Reiner did ask Goldman to take a look at the script back when it had been a spy thriller just to see what he thought of it, and Goldman's advice was apparently the same as Reiner's, which is ditch the spy angle. But um, for many years, people have speculated, floated this rumor, uh, and he he came out against it in his uh, his memoir, which is titled "Which Lie Did I Tell: Adventures in the Screen Trade." That was like a when I was in screenwriting school, that was like a bible practically. They were always recommending that book to us. But yeah, for years there's that, rumors persist to this day that he was quietly a, a script doctor and he punched up the script from these two kids from Boston made. Uh, in an early version of Goodwill Hunting, Will is actually a physics genius and not a math genius. And this change occurred because Matt Damon apparently showed the script to one of his Harvard professors, the Nobel Prize winning American theoretical physicist Sheldon Glashow. <laughs> and this guy persuaded Matt to make the change because he thought it would make sense for a lone wolf like Will Hunting to be a math guy. And another physicist, a guy named Brian Green from Columbia University, later observed, having some deep insight about the universe typically, is a group project in the modern era, whereas doing some mathematical theorem is a singular undertaking very often. And Will's whole thing in the movie is that he pushes people away. He's not really a group kind of guy, so this all makes sense. Professor Green continued in his interview with Business Insider, it does work better in the sense of, you got this guy, he sees a problem on the board, and he goes ahead and solves it. It's unlikely that someone could look at data by themselves and could come up with a theory of the origins of the universe on their own. So that's less believable. Yes, it's a much easier plot point as a problem on the board take a pencil and you solve it interestingly this professor says that the first math problem that will solves on the blackboard is quote not a particularly difficult problem <gasps> rude <laughs> i know uh <laughs> that scene is actually where there's the math problem left up on the board is apparently based on a real life incident that happened to matt damon's uh non-math genius brother kyle Matt later said that Kyle was visiting a physicist friend that he knew at MIT, and he was walking down what was known as the Infinite Corridor, which is this long corridor that had a bunch of blackboards on the other side. And he says, so my brother, who was an artist, picked up some chalk and wrote an incredibly elaborate, totally fake version of an equation. And it was so cool and completely insane that no one erased it for months. <laughs> I guess all the math wonks at MIT tried to take a shot at trying to solve it. <laughs> And there's a great piece in The Ringer called Remembering the Wonderful Little Idiosyncrasies of Goodwill Hunting on its 20th anniversary by a writer named Shay Sraro. And it makes fun of the way that Will solves the math problems uh, in this movie. They write, 
You can always tell how smart someone is by where they write their math equations. If a guy writes a math <laughs> equation on a mirror or a window or any other place you wouldn't expect to find one, you know he's a genius. Remember when Eduardo wrote the formula on the window in the social network? Or when John wrote the formulas on the window in A Beautiful Mind? Or when Christian wrote down the formulas on the windows in The Accountant? Conversely, if a guy writes a math equation on a piece of paper, then that's how you know you're dealing with a math simpleton. <laughs> And speaking of Will's superhuman intelligence, his rapid reading rate in the movie seems ridiculous until you learn that the guy who holds the world record for speed reading, a man named Howard Berg, can read 80 pages a minute. That's uh, what a page is this? in less than a second. What is the standard for that? Uh, what is being like, able to comprehension? Recall? I, I, yeah, I guess. I, no, I'm uh, that man is a, no. So this makes a, Will's uh two seconds a page pace seem pathetic by comparison. Yeah, I don't know. It's nuts. That's a grift. That's a lie. Fake news. <laughs> I'm Be sorry. <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, I just want to reiterate that both Matt and Ben come from an incredibly intellectual background. Will Hunting in the movie talks about being a big fan of the people's history of the United States by the legendary historian Howard Zinn, and he even recommends that book to his therapist, Sean played by Robin Williams. In real life, Howard Zinn was Matt and Ben's family friend and neighbor. <laughs> so again, these guys come from an incredibly intellectual background. And speaking of family friends, Ben Affleck's godfather was close with the director Terrence Malick, who directed Badlands and Days of Heaven, and a little later after Good Will Hunting came out, The Thin Red Line. And very good at networking at this point, Matt and Ben arranged a meeting with Terrence Malick to see what he thought of their movie script. And they discussed the plot over dinner, and they talked about the ending of the movie, or the original ending, I should say, where Will Hunting drives off with Minnie Driver's character, Skylar. And Matt Damon later recalled, in the middle of the dinner, Terrence Malick said, I think it would be better if she left and he went after her. And Ben and I looked at each other. It was one of those things where you go, of course that's better. And Terrence Malick started talking about the Italian director, Michelangelo Antonioni. He said, in Italian movies, a guy just leaves town at the end, and that's enough. And we <laughs> said, oh, of course that's enough. Bunch of face palms. That's how they changed their ending. Uh, another interesting element of an early version of Good Will Hunting was that Will was supposed to die. Hell yeah. You'll remember that near the start of this film, Will and his crew have a fight with Carmine Scarpaglia. And in this early draft, Carmine and his gang come back at the end of the movie and kill Will with a baseball bat as he's leaving for San Francisco with Skyler. And Matt Damon later explained, Will, deep down, actually wanted to be killed. It was his way of getting out. And thankfully, they jettisoned this uncut gems-esque bummer ending spoilers uh but when guest van sant <laughs> signed on as director for goodwill hunting he initially requested a death of his own he wanted ben affleck's character chucky to get killed in an accident at the construction site where he works and that was going to be the climax of the movie's second act crushed like a bug matt damon recalled him asking uh matt and ben very reluctantly went away and wrote it and then gus van sant read it and said this is a terrible idea and it was removed. <laughs> Kudos to Gus. <laughs> yeah. All right. So yeah, idea was bad. Sorry. Uh, and there is also a long lost sex scene between Will Hunting and his psychologist, Sean McGuire. Uh, I should explain. 
Matt and Ben were becoming very disillusioned with Castle Rock Entertainment, who were the production company that bought their script. And the production company were requesting endless rewrites, and Matt and Ben were convinced that they weren't actually reading these new drafts because they no longer cared about the script and they were just going to let it die on the vine. So to test the executives, Matt and Ben added a love scene between Matt Damon's character and Robin Williams' character just to see if anyone was paying attention. The example I read was something like, Sean talks to Will and unloads his conscience. Will takes a moment and then gives Sean a soulful look and leans in and starts blowing him. As it turns out, no one at Castle Rock said anything. (laughs) And this made Matt and Ben even more depressed. Matt later said they weren't reading the script closely anymore. It was literally probably a full paragraph about what these two characters were doing to each other. And Ben picks up the story. We would turn that in and they wouldn't even mention all those scenes where Sean and Will were jerking each other off. (laughs) And then later, when they were searching for a new production company to buy the script, they decided to go with Miramax because when they met with Harvey Weinstein, he was like, "Uh, yeah, my only real note is that uh, on page 60, the two leads, both uh, straight men have a sex scene. Uh, Why is that there? And they were like, it's like sword in the stone. Like, oh, you, you... You actually read the thing. All right. You're the guy. You're the one. And that's when they knew they found a new home because he was the first executive to say anything about it. Boy, the bar in Hollywood, huh? (laughs) You read. (laughs) Good Lord. But before they had even taken the script to Miramax, there was one major battle that they fought over at Castle Rock, and that was over casting. Matt and Ben wrote, Goodwill Hunting as a starring vehicle for themselves. The studio was not thrilled about this because they were obviously not big enough stars. It was a cliche um, then and now that every actor has a screenplay that they were just trying to get made to showcase their own talents. And the cliche is they're all terrible. One of the only exceptions to this rule is Sylvester Stallone with Rocky, who turned down that movie getting made with other people for years. (laughs) And so... Matt and Ben were told that Castle Rock wanted Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio in the lead roles instead. Whew. Leo, for context, would have just started the Basketball Diaries in 1995, and Brad would have been coming off of seven in that same year. Can you imagine? It would have been pretty good, except for the yeah. terrible accents. Who's who? Oh, Leo's guy. Leo's got the, I mean, Leo's hair in Titanic is Matt Damon's hair in Good Will Hunting. That's true. Uh, That's it's true. The same. Yeah. And then Brad Pitt's a little older, I think. So, yeah. Has Brad Pitt ever done a Boston accent? Oh, God, I hope not. <laughs> like, no, nah, not that I can think of. Matt and Ben were extremely unhappy about this, in addition to the other creative disagreements they had with Castle Rock, which also included who was going to direct the movie. Uh, They had also wanted to do it themselves, which was also never going to happen. Uh, The studio thought it was risky enough buying a script that had been written by actors to get them (laughs) auditions. (laughs) Uh, Affleck later said, when the question came up, we would say, we'll direct it. And there would be silence in the room. It was a polite silence. Like, are you high? But it was the beginning of my own directorial ambition. And Affleck would later, uh, you know, Notch some directing successes. Uh, Gone Baby Gone, The the Town. Probably the the most successful one is Argo. I don't really... Do people like Gone Baby Gone in the town? Mm, yeah, it has its, its fans. But anyway, Argo won Best Picture. Yeah, I was going to say, that seems... That'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, ultimately, though, Castle Rock uh, got tired of it before they did and issued them an ultimatum. 
You have 30 days to find someone else to buy your script and give us our money back, or else you guys are out and we're moving ahead without your involvement. And we're just sick of dealing with them. Like, all right, you guys are pain in the ass. According to Affleck, they said that someone else would direct it, rewrite it, act in it, and that we'd be lucky to get invited to a premiere. But instead of scaring us, it kind of emboldened us because then we really thought, this, we're going to go out there and do it. Even so, this obviously had them freaked out because they saw their big break slowly circling the drain. And according to Damon, over the following weeks, we went back to meet with all of the studios who had bid on the script, who we hadn't gone with, and basically everybody took the meeting just to tell us to go f*** ourselves. Hollywood! <sighs> Affleck tells the story of them going back to Interscope, who had initially offered them a million dollars, more than Castle Rock, and the head of the company said, I'll tell you why I took this meeting. Because I'm going to tell you I'm going to pass. And Affleck would later use that scene as an inspiration for a scene in Argo. So, desperate to find a buyer, and with time running out, they took the script to their friend, Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith had broken through uh, with his debut film in Clerks in uh, 1994, which is like, along with Pulp Fiction and probably mm. Slackers, too, as like the uh, uh, sort of the trifecta of indie movies in the early 90s, right? Would you consider Reality Bites? Uh... Um... Yes, maybe. Was that an indie or just like an indie aesthetic? Yeah, you're right. Maybe it was the indie aesthetic. Anyway, Smith, after making Clerks in 1994, had gotten close with Ben Affleck and cast him in Mallrats and Chasing Amy, as we mentioned earlier. Those movies had been distributed by Harvey Weinstein's company Miramax. And so Smith read the Goodwill Hunting script with the intention of bringing it to the Weinsteins. He apparently really liked the script. He later told Entertainment Weekly, I started it on the shitter and I stayed on the whole time with characteristic Kevin Smith charm. <laughs> sure enough, he took the script to the Weinsteins and said, drop everything you're doing right now and read this. They did just that and shelled out a million dollars to buy the script from Castle Rock. Uh, Miramax allowed Matt and Ben to star in the movie, but they still insisted on getting someone else to direct. And the two of them approached Kevin Smith to do it, and he promptly responded by telling them, no, you need someone good. <laughs> yeah, fair. Uh, he elaborated later, saying, I did not have enough talent to pull it off then. Even now, I don't think I do. Fair. Despite this, both Ben and Matt are in agreement that without Kevin Smith, the movie would never have happened. Kevin saved Goodwill Hunting, Matt Damon later said. This is not a small side note. He is the reason Goodwill Hunting got made. We were dead in the water. All the offers had evaporated. <laughs> ben Affleck's take on this is uh, steeped in a little bit of shame because he said... <laughs> I promised Kevin I would thank him if we ever got an Oscar and promptly forgot. And then I told him, if I ever win again, I swear to God, I'm going to thank you. And then when he, when Argo won for best picture, he forgot again. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously there were no hard feelings. Matt and Ben went on to appear in Dogma and Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, which features a memorable scene where they are shooting Goodwill Hunting 2 hunting season, uh, which is a, a great joke. Um, <laughs> and so in a sense, Kevin Smith got to direct a Goodwill Hunting after all. Uh, and that, that film also features Gus Van Zandt as himself. <laughs> yeah, I think it was himself. Yeah. Yes. Gus Van Zandt was ultimately the guy who got the director's chair, but there were a few other big names up for the job before he got the gig. Uh, contender number one was Mel Gibson. <laughs> Can you imagine Mel Gibson fresh off a of Braveheart directing had Goodwill a, Hunting? Tell you one thing, we've had a lot of nice things to say about Boston, but uh, you put Mel Gibson in Boston, I'm surprised that 
the air didn't curdle <laughs> in Cambridge. Good lord. Yeah, I know. <laughs> After Miramax bought the script from Castle Rock, they set up meetings with a number of potential directors, including Mel Gibson, who had a lot of heat, admittedly, coming off of Braveheart. And I guess when they met with Mel, Harvey Weinstein wanted Matt and Ben to butter him up. So he was like, you know, tell him how much you liked Braveheart. Problem was, neither of them had seen Braveheart yet, and Harvey hit the roof. He's like, well, just, just lie. So sure enough, the first words out of their mouth to Mel were, oh, we just want to tell you how much we loved Braveheart. And we also hate black people. <laughs> Hollywood. <laughs> Mel took the project on and actually spent a few months developing it, but he was going really slowly, which led Matt and Ben to get the impression that he wasn't really all that interested. And they were also worried about aging out of the roles due to the lengthy pre-production that they'd already have. I mean, Will's supposed to be 20 in the movie. I think he turns 21 during it. And Matt was already 25, 26. So they were starting to get a little antsy. So they ultimately asked Mel Gibson if he'd step down from the director role in favor of someone who actually seemed to give a damn. And shockingly, considering his clout at the time, he did. The chutzpah these guys have. Telling Mel Gibson, <laughs> didn't like Braveheart just win the Oscar like the year before? Good lord. It's really, it's, it's verges on hubris. It's really, yeah. it's, it's, it's really impressive. Yeah. Miramax also briefly considered Steven Soderbergh as a director before they approached Michael Mann. And Michael Mann <laughs> wanted to make a couple really drastic changes. He wanted <laughs> Will and his friends to be car thieves. <laughs> and he didn't want most, that even in the there at most, all. The most Michael Mann note of yeah. all time. Yeah, they, gotta be, they gotta be car thieves. Yeah. <laughs> and he didn't like Matt Damon at all. And uh, the Producers were like, eh, it's kind of a package deal. Can you at least screen test them? And, and he did. And he still hated Matt Damon. Producers ultimately sided with Matt, which is pretty cool. Uh, so they yeah. told Michael Mann to take a hike. And this is really bizarre. It came out last year that Ben Stiller was also considered to direct Goodwill Hunting. And he made his directorial debut with yeah. Reality Bites in 1994, and he was looking for something to follow it up. And that's when the script for Goodwill Hunting landed on his desk. And he said, I got sent it by my agent at the time. He's talking to Howard Stern. The first turnoff was that these two guys who wrote it were attached to act in it. I was like, what? Come on, I cast my own projects. Who are these guys? And Howard Stern countered by saying, but it was Goodwill Hunting. It's one of the greatest movies ever made, right? And Ben Stiller deadpans. Well, I haven't seen it in a while. <laughs> and then he made The Cable Guy. Oh, that's right. I forgot he directed that. Yeah. I didn't realize that. I mean, I knew that Ben Stiller like was a director, but I didn't realize that he directed like Zoolander and... I guess I knew he did Tropic Thunder, but he did a lot of directorial stuff that I totally forgot about. What else did he do? Well, I guess those were the only I two mean, good Tropic Thunder, yeah, was, Zoolander, and and Reality Bites were I guess the only three good ones. So that's interesting. But the job ultimately went to Gus Van Zant. Matt and Ben were big fans of his movie Drugstore Cowboy with Matt Dillon and Kelly Lynch. And Matt Damon had actually auditioned for his movie To Die For, ultimately losing out to Joaquin Phoenix. But Casey Affleck, Ben's brother, had been cast in that movie, which is kind of what gave them an in with Gus. And it was actually during the production of To Die For that Gus Van Zandt first discovered the music of Elliot Smith. 
Well, he later said he didn't use it because, quote, I was looking for something that was really raw, but we were thinking more in terms of heavy metal. So that's why we didn't use Elliot <laughs> in that movie. Yeah, it's kind of the anti-metal Elliot Smith. Uh, Van Zandt was more used to making art house movies. And Google Hunting is, I think, to this day, by far his most commercially successful film ever. In fact, it made just $9 million less than all 16 of his other films combined. So, yeah. Uh, I think his like passion project after this was uh, the shot for shot remake of Psycho. Remake of Psycho starring yeah. Vince Vaughn, yes. Mm-hmm. And Anne Heche. Yeah. Yeah. What a bizarre, that bizarre. Was super thing bizarre. To do. That was in the era when I was going out to um to Los Angeles a lot and would go around the Universal Backlot and the Bates Motel and, and the Psycho House are still kept there. And so I remember um walking around these they weren't even facades. The Bates Motel actually had rooms you could go into and going in there. And one of them, one of them had a shower in it with like fake blood splattered around in. At least I hope it was fake. Uh, I don't know how much <laughs> of that was just for like tourists and stuff. Like, I mean, you weren't really supposed to be walking around back there unless you were like authorized. So I don't know who that would have been for. But yeah, no, it was really weird. I remember like being around there right around when the time when Gus Van Zandt and Vince Vaughn and uh, Anne Hayes were making that. I, yeah, I mean, it's his his arc is hilarious. I mean, he did um, Goodwill Hunting, Psycho, Finding Forrester, something called Jerry, written by Damon and Casey Affleck. Mm. I have no memory of this movie. Uh, and then he did that school shooter movie Elephant, and then he right. did the the weird Kurt Cobain thing. What's the weird Kurt Cobain thing? Last Days. I have no idea what that is. Oh, really? That's funny. That's the movie where Michael Pitt basically just plays thinly veiled uh, <sighs> Kurt Cobain and just like wanders around his house. That's really weird. Where the hell are we? Uh, oh, Matt Ben, <laughs> so cute. They were so green that when they took Gus Van Zandt out for early uh, preliminary meetings to try to get him on board, they took him to Denny's. <laughs> ben Affleck said, Denny's was sort of normal for us. Where else would we go? We didn't even have any frame of reference of what famous people were supposed to do. Oh. But what really kicked the production into high gear was when Matt Damon got cast in the film adaptation of John Grisham's bestseller, The Rainmaker. And at that time, adaptations of John Grisham's legal thrillers were huge. You had The Firm, The Pelican Brief, The Client, The Chamber, and bucking the the trend, A Time to Kill. So (laughs) getting a role in The Rainmaker was big news for Matt, and he excitedly faxed the message to Harvey Weinstein, I am The Rainmaker. (laughs) <laughs> no further explanation and according to the story harvey had no idea what this meant and thought this was matt damon's way of threatening him with legal action he's like are you into water sports too <laughs> wait this is probably the best segue i could possibly ever have did i tell you this i think i texted you this the harvey weinstein story over the weekend did i text you oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah um yeah. I, a friend of a friend I just learned, um, worked at the Weinstein's company. And I guess it was like a thing around the, I mean, I'm sure there were many things around the office, but one of them was don't have bowls of candy on your desk because when Harvey comes by, he has no self-control and he will, he will drain them. He will, he will eat them all. And it became a not infrequent occurrence that Harvey would just eat an entire bowl of candy on someone's desk at once and then go back into his office and vomit and it was like somebody's assigned job in the office 
to clean up Harvey Weinstein's vomit when he ate too much candy off of somebody else's desk. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was my... Yeah, we're we're, we're, we're kind of soft on Harvey in this episode, so I'm glad I got that in there. But anyway, what Matt was trying to say was that he knew he was about to have some heat on him and wanted to fast track Goodwill Hunting. And The Rainmaker was directed by Francis Ford Coppola, who had just worked on the notorious box office bomb Jack with Robin Williams, which is how Robin got a hold of the script and signed on to the production, which we'll talk more about in a bit. Shooting for Goodwill Hunting started on April 14th, 1997. It was completed in just nine weeks. Because remember, this was a $10 million movie. It was very cheap. And supposedly the first thing that they shot was the bar scene with Robin Williams and Stellan Skarsgård, who plays the arrogant professor. And Matt later talked about how powerful it was to watch their words come to life. He said, quote, when Gus called action and we watched these guys do our scene verbatim, we'd waited so long for this to happen. I remember just sitting next to Ben and I had tears rolling down my cheeks because I was just so happy that it was really happening. It was a mixture of joy and disbelief and relief and gratitude. That was a really nice moment. I'm not ashamed to say it. And Ben Affleck added, it was all we thought about this movie. It was all we focused on and we never really believed it would happen. And it sort of represented the sum total of what we tried to do. You know, we might have cried for other reasons had we, had we been able to see the whole future and understand the complexity of what we'd gotten ourselves into. But at the time, we had the sort of surety and naivete of being just guys in our mid-twenties who weren't thinking about anything except what was happening just right there in the moment and feeling a tremendous amount of belief and satisfaction that it actually happened, that we'd actually accomplished something. We just felt relieved that we hadn't totally failed. <laughs> ben Affleck with this trademark downerism. One thing Matt Damon was not especially grateful for was his hair in this movie. <laughs> he told an interviewer in 2012 that the shaggy mushroom cut deal was, quote, so my fault. For whatever reason, at that age, I loved that haircut. And Gus Van Sant was like, really? And Ben was like, really? If you look at Ben's hair in that movie, it's totally acceptable by today's standards. But no, I wanted the frosted hair. I don't know what my problem was. I look like I should be singing backup for Color Me Bad. <laughs> Yikes. Accurate. Yeah, it's not good. I mean, it's no worse than Leonardo DiCaprio's hair in Titanic, though. Which is, yeah, it's true. See that, that tweet that was going around? It's like, yeah, wow, like James Cameron got the original carpet makers to replicate the carpet from the Titanic, and the, we every no no expense was spared on getting all the details exact, having the correct insignia stamped on the cutlery. And I mean he re rebuilt the Titanic, and yet they left Leonardo DiCaprio's hair. Like it's that. probably in his contract. Yeah, yeah, you don't touch the hair. Much more stylish in Goodwill Hunting is the character of Skylar. Is Skylar like the official Gen X dream girl name? I feel like that's just like the most. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, she's played, of course, by Minnie Driver. And in our prerequisite, Harvey Weinstein is a scumbag anecdote for this episode. He initially didn't want her in the movie because he thought she wasn't attractive enough. But he eventually backed down after being persuaded by Matt and Ben and Gus Van Sant. The character of Skylar was based on Matt's girlfriend, who was also named Skylar, a woman named Skylar Satinstein, who was a medical student at Harvard when Matt was enrolled there. And just before filming started on Goodwill Hunting, she left him for Metallica drummer Lars Ulrich, whom she later married the year Goodwill Hunting was released. So 
<laughs> the universe was kept in check for Matt Damon there. He later <sighs> said that he lost the love of his life to quote a fucking rock star who's got $80 million in his own jet. And he's a bad rock star too. <laughs> I mean, Lars is high on the list of the most hated rock stars I'd say in the world. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah very yeah, high yeah. on that list. The real life Skylar and Lars later divorced in 2004, but there are a lot of little personal moments in the movie. The character of Skylar talks about her dad dying years earlier and the real life Skylar coped with the loss of her dad years before she and Matt met at Harvard. Her father was a TV director, Frank Satinstein, who directed episodes of the Jackie Gleason show, The Honeymooners and What's My Line, the pioneering early game show. So that's weird. <laughs> but yeah, I love all these little touches of, of real life that Matt and Ben put into this movie. The uh, number of the construction company where Will and Chucky work, that phone number was the actual number for the Massachusetts construction company that Matt Damon worked for in high school. I, just, I love that. These little moments. Matt Damon and Mindy Driver actually dated for a time when this movie was being filmed before breaking up just after it was released. And I guess Matt went on the Oprah Winfrey show and announced that he was single. And that was how Minnie found out that they were done, <gasps> which is, I know he seems like such a nice guy. It's a very like scumbaggy thing to do. Yeah. She later told the Telegraph, we split up very publicly that April in 1998, which was grim. And it turned from this beautiful thing into something so dark. I always was really sad that we didn't stay friends because it was absolutely incandescent making that film. So, uh, so that's not cute, but we do in fact <laughs> have a cute anecdote that occurred between Minnie and Matt during the filming of Goodwill Hunting. In the scene where they're in bed together and Will's just sort of mumbling half asleep, that is real. Matt Damon had fallen asleep, uh, presumably because he was exhausted from writing and starring in this thing. So he just crawled into the bed on set during a lunch break and passed out. And Minnie later recalled, we had this scene after lunch that took place in the bed. So I think he thought he was just going to get a head start on the whole thing. I remember the cinematographer saying, let him sleep. We'll just shoot it from above. And they built the structure. So you're above the bed. And Gus was like, well, just go and get in the bed with him. And I got in the bed and was like, babe, you know, we got to, we got to do this thing. And he just kind of mumbles and it was so quiet and he was so sleepy. And we did the scene based around him, like really being asleep. And I love that everything worked around that. It's such a beautiful scene. One of my very favorites. Sleepy boy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, weird aside that I assume is not a coincidence. Skylar's room number is 206. And that is, I believe, the number of bones in the human body, which is cute because she's supposed to be majoring in pre-med. I know that from uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Linda Hamilton breaks the guy's uh, hand with a with a, a, a nightstick. And he's like, he's like, you broke my hand. She's like... There are 206 bones in the human body. That's one. <laughs> great. Love Linda Hamilton. You know who wrote that line? William Goldman. James Cameron. Oh. <laughs> yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us. 
ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah Yeah Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who are the risk takers that help reinvent and reimagine the kinds of stories we see on TV? We Disrupt This Broadcast, a brand new podcast from the Peabody Awards and the Center for Media and Social Impact, talks to creators of TV shows like Abbott Elementary, Watchmen, Black Mirror, and Better Things to explore how the most compelling shows and the creative powers behind them are upending the status quo. Listen to We Disrupt This Broadcast now, available where you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, now we have arrived at the part of the show where we talk about Ben Affleck as Chucky. His best, some of his best, but yeah, it's kind of... Hmm. Kind of sad he he peaked. <laughs> Argo. I don't think he's good in Argo. Uh, Dogma. I don't think he's good in Dogma either. <laughs> Armageddon. Keep going. What else you got? <laughs> Gone Girl. Oh, he's good in Gone yeah, Girl. Yeah, because yeah. it weaponizes his crippling unlikability. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Probably the best acting of his career is in the scene where, uh, you know, he tells Will he's got to stop being afraid of success and leave town. You know, if not for him, then for all of his friends who don't have what he had, his his brain and they believe in him and they want the best for him. And that was a speech that uh, Affleck and Damon had had drafted over and over and over again. And they spent months and working on it. And Gus Van Zant said that, uh, he knew that Ben nailed it in the first take, but after having written it for so long, Ben had a hard time believing that it was just over in five minutes. <laughs> he told Boston Magazine, I had been thinking about the scene and how it was going to play out, then reading it out loud and writing it and rewriting it and rehearsing it in my mind over years and years. It was just kind of like, is it, is it over? It's just hard to almost internalize the fact that, okay, we're going to wait four years and it's going to be over in five seconds. Kind of like losing my virginity. Oh, uh, he does have a way with words. They ultimately did two more takes, but they used the first one, and it remains one of the best moments in a career with... Not that many of them. Surely others. <laughs> oh, I like... that. This brings us to a segment of the show that we like to call the unbearable sadness of Ben Affleck. <laughs> oh, I like him in Chasing Amy, actually. Oh, he's like a, yeah. Well, yeah, he's like once a again, like Gone Girl... He's a befuddled idiot. <laughs> but 
but again, that's his reputation. And as we'll get yes. to now, he actually is so much more than that. And the fact that he only succeeds at being this befuddled idiot is very depressing to him. Yeah. And it's and this is the thing that I love about Ben Affleck is his his um apparently unbreakable core of of sadness um have you seen that i'm i we've all seen this thing of him standing on the beach but have you seen the um the red carpet thing when he's at when he's with when his face just falls just deflates and it's just i my <laughs> somebody God, comes never. up and is talking to him and he's like you know chipper yeah he, he turns it on got, yeah he turns it on he grins he's like hey I, you can see him doing the thing and then just in a second it falls away and it's just the look of a man haunted by years i'm so of, fascinated uh, by him so oh, yeah, fascinated by him it's just it, i mean it's it's kind of like um it's like billy joel like we're talking about i was yes exactly it's like we we're just talking about billy joel it's just like someone who succeeded at their chosen medium and by every other conceivable possible measure of human success spiritual creative financial and is still just like nope well you know what it is <laughs> i think he he's successful but he doesn't have the validation from i think what he would deem the intellectual elite like billy joel never was a critical favorite ever sure and i think that yeah. affleck feels that he's matt damon's dumb friend in the in the public mm. perception i think that this movie was simultaneously the best and worst thing that ever happened to ben affleck goodwill hunting because i think the public viewed him as his character in that movie. I mean, yeah. Matt's older. He's the one who went to Harvard. He's the one who started writing the script to begin with. He was the one who played the lead role. He was the one who dated the lead actress. And Ben had a PlayStation or something, you know? like Yeah, there's that Family Guy joke uh, about... Uh, it's like a cutaway joke where it's like uh, them writing the script to <laughs> yeah. Good Hunting and... and <laughs> He's like, oh, I can't believe we wrote with the Affleck is the Avatar. He's like, I can't believe we finished the script. And he's like, we? I've been writing this for the past 10 years, and all you've done is sit on the couch and smoke pot and eat briars. And there's like a beat, and the Affleck guy goes, is there any more pot? <laughs> so yes, that's that's that that joke. Uh, and that was in <laughs> Family Guy in like 2002 or three. so that reputation persisted. Uh Affleck would later say, uh, I've had people say, wow, you're pretty smart, as if they expected this real sort of dummy, a guy who is even less intelligent than Chucky. Uh, I always forget, too, that he's bilingual. What? Yeah, when he's fluent in Spanish. When he was dating, dating Anna de Armas, they would speak in Spanish back and forth to each other. <laughs> How? Just Affleck? good at language? or uh, like, he, like, learned, he learned with his mom traveling around Mexico, apparently, for like an extended amount of time. Cool. Like a year or something. He was like... He's a smart dude. Yeah. Uh, you know, we... And, and I mean, yeah, it's just... To me, it's the sadness more than the dumbness. Like, I mean, there's that that image of him just disassociating in the middle of a junket next to... Uh, uh, is it... He, he's doing it next to Superman... Henry Cavill for Batman v Superman, the sound of sadness one where he just clearly goes away and just stares off into nothingness. There's the one of him smoking a cigarette, like up against the wall, just like staring into nothing, like just eyes closed. Yeah. I, I, I had a friend God, who man. got that put. Actually, I think it's my girlfriend's sister uh, painted onto a canvas and is framed. She's from Boston, the cigarette by the one? way. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that and the Duncan thing, man. Just like 
the you know dropping the handful of Duncan in the in his doorway. <laughs> it's just uh, it's it's so great. I mean, he is such a yeah. It's it's sad because it is such a uh, 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 it's the striver. He just wants to be so much more than the than the guy with the chiseled jaw and the little baby teeth that Michael Bay made get fixed. Uh, we have the aforementioned as 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 arrows in this quiver. We have the aforementioned uh, BuzzFeed article, the uh, famous New Yorker piece uh, called "The Great Sadness of Ben Affleck" that is basically kind of mean to him. Isn't that the one where he tweeted about it? I don't remember that. He said something about how, because they commented on his Phoenix tattoo, his back oh, tattoo. Oh, yeah, that he claimed was fake. Which is the fake. most Boston thing ever. Yeah, would you the like to describe back, his, his full Phoenix? back Phoenix tattoo. Um, yeah, the, the, the picture, if I'm remembering correctly, that the New Yorker article uses is him standing on the beach um, in a towel. And he's not, he's not in fighting shape. Uh, let's say, and he has a towel sort of up around his, his midriff and, um, you know, I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a tattoo artist. Um, but your wife is, my wife is. And, and, uh, I don't know. I don't know. There's like an omerta about like on tattoo artists in public, but so I don't actually know who did that, but man, I'm sure it's technically good, but it is just this. It's it's every color of the rainbow. Yeah. It's it's um it has it has peak what are clearly peacock tails. Has there and, been a clear image of it ever? Yeah, I'm looking at it, oh, buddy. I'm looking at it right now. A very clear image. Yeah, I mean it's weird because the fire seems to terminate on his butt, his uh. left butt cheek. So it may actually go down further than his back. There's a tiny moon up in the upper right okay, corner, yeah. and like. Dude, I, I had like my he's back. screaming into a towel as in the picture that I'm seeing. <laughs> I had my back done. It, it, it's like, that was like seven, seven sessions. And they're discrete pieces that are all kind of all over. But you do this in several sessions. So he committed to this. I mean, you do outline, then you do fill, and then you do color, and then you come back for a touch-up. We're talking like several four to six hour sessions anyway the writer in the new yorker made reference naomi fry was the writer and she uh she made reference to his tattoo i believe she used the phrase um or word garish um to describe it he tweeted in response to it uh he said i have thick skin bolstered by garish tattoos He's aware of it. I mean, you know, they he saw the the Henry Cavill thing. He says when he was asked by the BBC, nonetheless, asked him what he learned from doing a uh, Batman and V Superman. He said it taught me not to do interviews with Henry Cavill where I don't say anything and they can lay Simon and Garfunkel tracks over it. <laughs> so, anyway, all of this is to say that you know his head hangs heavy. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Ben Affleck talked about the public misconception of his role in Goodwill Hunting in a 2000 interview with Talk Magazine. I took the whole writer thing very seriously. In retrospect, if I'd known then what I know now, I would have expanded the part that I played. Matt had a bigger part in School Ties, and he had been the lead in Geronimo. Both movies totally bombed, and no one was offering him any parts, but you could make the case that he was the actor. I'd only had supporting roles, and there wasn't a lot of room in the script. For us both to star, especially because we needed to have a big name, like Robin Williams, in order to get it made. 
So I felt like, well, okay, we'll cut my scenes out. And this put them uh, on the differing roads that they made. You know, Damon got the sort of tag as the serious dramatic actor with talented Mr. Ripley and, uh, you know, his role in Ocean's Eleven. And then Affleck's career had stuff like uh, Pearl Harbor and Bounce, which is a pretty massive flop. Even, even, well, yeah. Even Damon's acting, a- action movies were are largely better than Affleck's, which is sad <laughs> he couldn't even let him have the meathead action stuff nope. he was like i'm gonna do this thing called burn identity where i uh kick a lot of ass um you can do daredevil uh <laughs> in the buzzfeed piece Anne helen peterson makes the memorable comparison if damon's career choices were whole foods affleck's were increasingly costco uh he was making a lot of money but had no critical cachet or success um which we have already compared to Billy Joel. And in Ben's case, he's found him uh, trapped in, found himself trapped in action star land. And uh, yeah, you know, he's, he's really an intellect, son of Bay area intellectuals and drama kid at heart. Uh, There's a story from pre-production phase of Armageddon where Ben left the first meeting with director Michael Bay and producer Jerry Bruckheimer. And Michael Bay turns to Bruckheimer and says, Jerry, he's a geek. Bay remembers thinking, okay, so he's this kind of pale Boston guy. We can work him out, give him a tan, do everything to make him a star. Uh, but Liv Tyler, his co-star of that movie, saw through it. She told People magazine, Ben has this nerdy, smart guy side to him. He's obsessed with the New York Times crossword puzzle. He reads a lot. He's really interested in knowing more about the world. And yet another friend of his described Ben's idea of the good life as eating at Subway and playing video games. Uh, he has vintage Ms. Pac-Man and Millipede arcade cabinets in his Manhattan loft, which is an adorable detail. And uh, while Matt Damon was pulling off the big con as the pickpocket Linus in Ocean's Eleven, Ben Affleck is getting banned from cowed karting at, at Blackjack in the Hard Rock Las Vegas. <sighs> <laughs> and that just, to me, that just sums up. Like the can't catch a breakness of being Ben Affleck. It's like Matt Damon is pulling off the big con in Vegas in this great movie franchise. Ben Affleck is getting legitimately good at this game. <laughs> and he's getting so good that he's getting tossed out of the casino. Uh, he commented on all this in October of 2014 to Details Magazine. said, I took some time to learn the game and became a decent blackjack player. Once I became decent, the casinos asked me not to play blackjack. I mean, the fact that being good at a game is against the rules at a casino should tell you something about a casino. It's not illegal. Yeah. It's just frowned upon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if Argo filled that hole for him. I, I think, I know the, the one, the, the Tender tender Bar, that new movie, his one of his most recent ones was, I think, a lot of his reckoning with his own uh, personal demons with alcoholism and his sort of the specter of his father. But uh, I don't know. He's, he's in a... Uh, I think the last thing he's been in the news for recently is just getting back with Jennifer Lopez. Decent thing to get back in the news for, for honest with ourselves. He was in Clerks Three. Oh, he was in that bar. I mean, he was in the he was in the Last Duel, which a lot of people said really good things about. Which is the first um, time that he and Matt Damon collaborated on a screenplay since Good Will Hunting. And uh, but then he was in Deep Water with Anna Darmas, and that was pretty pretty well ripped ripped apart. Anyway, back to Goodwill Hunting. Uh, <laughs> another star of this film is the word f- 
<laughs> uh, Miramax toyed with the idea of making the movie PG-13, which meant that it couldn't contain no more than three f***s. I've always heard that that was one. Uh, was yeah, it? I was going to say three. Maybe in 1997, the three sounds yeah. high. Matt said, okay, so how many are we over? And the Miramax executive checked his notes and responded, 145. Yeah, the movie is rated R, for those of you keeping track at home. Um, and of course, you know, dozens of quotables, like, aside from, it's not your fault, uh, because f*** him, that's why. Yeah, I say that a lot. How you like them apples, um, which is, I guess, also in Chinatown? Yeah, I had never heard that phrase until this movie, but I guess it was just a phrase that Matt and Ben heard around Boston growing up. It's like an that's old-timey... So I will end you. I did. Is that the first place that I that I heard that from? I think Robin Williams said that he heard that at a bar when some big guy was picking on a little guy, and the little guy all of a sudden just summoned, like you know, stood at his full height of like five foot three or whatever, and just growled back, "I will end you," and it just stuck in Robin's mind because he just thought it was just. I mean, the, the whole scene was so vivid to him, but he just thought it was such a great line. Um, I believe that was a Robin Williams improv in this movie. Yeah, my boy's wicked smart. Well, all right. Oh yeah, my but boy's we wicked get snacks. smart. That is we from. Get, but we got snacks. <laughs> Yeah, we gotta talk about Casey Affleck's character, Morgan. Uh, he apparently wasn't supposed to be in this movie at all. Casey Affleck <laughs> was just hanging around the set in order to make a behind-the-scenes documentary of the filming of Good Will Hunting for his older brother, Ben. Very proud younger brother. And for whatever reason, Gus Van Sant just loved him and kept pestering him to be in the movie, despite the fact that he didn't have a manager or even an agent. And eventually Casey Affleck said yes, and eventually made his character up basically on the spot, improvising most of his dialogue. And he most memorably made up the line, I swallowed a bug, which is his exit line when Skylar comes over to talk to Will at the bar. And it just seems like a random throwaway joke, just something goofy that this goofy guy says. But it's actually a reference, a really obscure cinematic reference to a behind the scenes documentary called Heart of Darkness, which is about the chaotic production of Apocalypse Now, directed by Francis Ford Coppola who's in the mix of all this Google hunting stuff. In this documentary, there's a moment when Marlon Brando stops mid-take when he's in the middle of one of the Colonel Kurtz monologues and says, oh, swallowed a bug. And I'm <laughs> guessing Casey Affleck watched this making of documentary as inspiration when he was gearing up to film the Goodwill hunting shoot. And then that line popped into his head on the set. But there was a lot of improv in this movie, so much so that Matt and Ben did what I think is kind of a cool thing when it came time for Oscar campaigning. They sent copies of the script along with a print of the movie to all the members of the Academy who were voting so that anyone watching could follow along the script and see where it deviated from, you know, what was on the screen. And that was a cool way to both give credit to the actors who'd ad-libbed their lines, which, you know, Robin Williams was a huge factor in that. Uh, and also it showed that there were a lot of scenes that were done completely as written and proving that Matt and Ben were very good at their job as screenwriters. We'll get into this more at the end of the episode, but the only three people that had ever been nominated for writing and acting in the same year up to this point was Charlie Chaplin for The Great Dictator, Orson Welles for Citizen Kane, and Sylvester Stallone for Rocky. And then Matt Damon became the fourth for Goodwill Hunting. Impressive company. Good for him. Well, we can't get into ad-libbing without talking about the American treasure 
that is Robin Williams. You recall from earlier in this episode, once it gets edited into coherence, that uh, Matt Damon was in The Rainmaker, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, who had just made the movie Jack with Robin Williams. Uh, you want to talk about Jack, Jordan? Yeah. It's, is, <laughs> is anyone remember that? Like, It's almost one of those movies that I feel like I just made up in a fever dream. Robin Williams plays a kid who ages at like five or ten times the rate that normal kids do. So it's basically like big, really, if you think about it. It's like yeah, big. Yeah. It's like big, but sad because then he uh, obviously <laughs> will die a lot sooner. And like the end of the movie, he's like graduating high school or middle school yeah. or something, and he like looks like an old man, and all of his friends look exactly the same, and they're kids. And yeah, yeah it's a real bummer. Yeah, yeah, weird film. Uh, anyway, presumably at this point, uh, Matt Damon asked Francis to pass the script to Goodwill Hunting along to Robin, who was very impressed. First thing he said after reading it, reportedly, was, who are these guys? He described the film as extraordinary and was shocked to discover that the screenwriters were two guys in their early 20s. He agreed to take on the role of a therapist, Sean McGuire, which gave the movie its needed dose of star power and ensure that the film would basically get made. Uh, Robin told Boston Magazine in 2013, what drew me to the role was the idea of a guy trying to give back who hasn't been practicing in a while. Here he is, a vet with a history, with a life, an intelligent guy who admits he's not as brilliant as the kid, but who is saying, you're brilliant, but you don't know shit about certain things. That appealed to me deeply. The character of Sean is basically a fusion of Ben Affleck's father and Matt Damon's mother, who is an early childhood education professor at Lesley University. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. The painting of the boat that Will mocks in Sean's office was actually painted by Gus Van Sant. <laughs> Uh, and bears a suspicious uh, similarity to the opening scene of 1980's Popeye, Robin Williams' uh, film debut. Um, and in the scene where we meet Sean first in the lecture hall, the words Susser 1969 are written on the backboard behind him. Uh, in 1969, Robin Williams performed in a production of The Taming of the Shrew at Marin College, directed by one Harvey Susser, his first stage director. So this is thought to be a nod to him. Uh, Sean becomes kind of a surrogate father. He understands Will because they both went through similar things, but parental abuse at a young age and a tragic loss later in life. And Sean is a crucial character in the first versions of the script. The only scene from the first draft of the film that made it into the movie verbatim is the scene where Will and Sean meet for the first time. And that's where the I will end you line comes in, I think, right? Yeah, if you disrespect my wife again. Uh, as you might expect... Robin joked around with pretty much everyone on the set in between takes, doing his uh, litany of impressions, <laughs> including Janet Reno and Frankenstein. And then Matt Damon would see these and raise him Richard Nixon and Daffy Duck. Uh, in the scene where he has his big fight with uh, with Stellan Skarsgård, calls him a prick. Uh, when they were doing close-up with Stellan, uh, Robin would do his lines as various characters. <laughs> Stellan said later, I came in and it wasn't Robin. It was Jack Nicholson there. And he talked like Jack Nicholson. He behaved like Jack Nicholson. I tried to play the scene with him because I'm really bad at improvising. So it became very strange. And then everybody laughed. We had to do it again. And I came in. And it was James Cagney. I think it was five or six takes with a different person I met in that part every time. And then gradually he did something more and more like the character in the film. Uh, Skarsgård was not alone in uh, finding it difficult to match Robin's energy. Gus Van Sant remembered. It was really entertaining, and a day after that, I was like, isn't that great? Isn't that fun that you guys are improving that? And Matt said, no, it's exhausting. <laughs> he couldn't keep up with Robin. 
the uh, the the farting wife scene uh, in the line in therapy was unscripted, and you can see Robin and Matt both cracking up with real laughter. And uh, one of the other tells that it's unscripted is because Matt leans forward to laugh and he goes out of focus in the frame. And then the camera starts to shake up and down because the camera guy couldn't stop from laughing either. <laughs> it's a great scene. Yeah, Robin still, after going off on this crazy tangent about his wife, takes it back to the script talking about the little idiosyncrasies that only I knew about. That's what made her my wife, which I always thought was a beautiful line. Yeah, but the, you know, the crowning achievement of his ad-libbing on the film was probably his final line the final line of the film when Sean reads the letter that Will left him, uh, which says that he has to leave town because he has to go and see about a girl. And uh, Robin would ad-lib a different reaction line every time. And when he dropped, son of a bitch, stole my line. It was obvious to all that they had a keeper. Um, Matt Damon later called it Robin's best addition to the film. He said there was nothing scripted there. He opens the mailbox and reads the note that I'd written him. Gus and I were right next to the camera because every time he came out for a new take, I would read the letter to him because it's a voiceover. He came out saying different lines every single time. When he said, son of a bitch stole my line, I grabbed Gus. It was like a bolt. <laughs> it was just one of those holy shit moments where like, that's it. <laughs> Robin also took a very active role in location scouting for the movie. After signing on, he was very excited to get a taste of South Boston, which for anyone who didn't grow up near Boston in the 90s was a very risky proposition. Matt and Ben took Robin around and I guess ended up at a dive bar called the L Street Tavern. And Ben would later refer to this as a f***ing mistake. <laughs> you would think that Robin Williams would make friends wherever he went, but not in South Boston. <laughs> The whole crew were mobbed by rowdy locals who apparently resented the fact that there were stars in their midst. One drunk guy asked Robin Williams where he parked his private jet or yacht, accounts vary, and another guy tried to fight Ben Affleck for wearing his hat backwards. I guess apparently the bar had been purchased a few weeks earlier before shooting and the new owners had plans to renovate it to keep up with the rapidly gentrifying neighborhood. So it's maybe understandable that the sight of actual superstar millionaires in their midst, in their, you know, endangered dive bar would piss off the locals. So I get it. But despite this tricky encounter, Robin loved the place and told Harvey Weinstein that they had to shoot at the Eld Street Tavern. Harvey agreed, but then sent a frantic all-caps fax message to Matt and Ben, do not take Robin to any more locations, because he feared for his safety. And this L Street Tavern, it's still there, it's just north of L Street Beach, and it attracts fans of the movie and also fans of cheap booze. They had a uh, black tie Oscar party at this dive bar <laughs> on the night of the Oscars in 1998, which is cute. Although it did get a semi-upscale renovation in the early 2000s so it's not quite as divey as as one might like there's a sign out front of the l street tavern proclaiming the home of goodwill hunting which is cute but not strictly true will's home was actually uh exterior shots of it at least the triple decker where he lived is on west 6th street in south boston and the guy who lived in that place at the time the movie was filmed very proudly self-identified for years as quote the only guy in southie who'd never seen goodwill hunting he told the Boston Globe, I got two new windows out of the deal, and I met Matt Damon. He said, do you know me? And I said, no. He was just some blonde boy. <laughs> but the neighborhood has certainly changed in the 25 years since Goodwill Hunting was filmed. 
After a renovation, the ground floor apartment where Will supposedly lived sold in 2017 for $729,000. So it's probably worth over a million dollars now. And the two-bedroom, two-bathroom unit upstairs from Will in that same building is on the market now available to rent for $4,500 a month. I think they have a washer and dryer, though. (laughs) Much of this movie was shot around Harvard Square in Cambridge, not far from where Matt and Ben grew up. And they would later say their school was a quarter mile down the road. So this was just super cool for them to bring the whole movie circus to their own doorstep. And the bar where Will meets Skyler and the Baskin and Robbins Dunkin' Donuts combo next door where he does the whole I got her number bit, uh, both closed soon after the movie was shot. I think they actually even renovated the facade of the building so that you you can, what I'm saying now is you can't replicate that scene on the original window where Matt Damon does that, which no, I know. Yeah, I know (laughs) it belongs in a museum. Now loyal TMI listeners will know that shooting on the Harvard campus is a difficult thing to pull off because Harvard is famously very reluctant to allow film crews into their hollowed halls of learning. We talked about this in the Legally Blonde episode. Uh, Even the social network directed by David Fincher was denied shooting privileges at Harvard. But the Good Will Hunting production got a helping hand from John Lithgow who's a Harvard grad and presumably held some sway in the alumni department because he's a big actor. He put in a call, and before long, the production team for Goodwill Hunting had access. But the lecture hall in the movie is actually a lecture hall in McLennan Physical Laboratories, which is a building at the University of Toronto, where a lot of the interior shots were filmed on a soundstage there. But no spot in Boston is more synonymous with Goodwill Hunting than the bench in the Boston Public Gardens. And Robin Williams' character clues Will into the difference that is a big difference between book knowledge and life experience. And despite the really intimate nature of that scene, there was apparently a crowd of an estimated 3,000 people watching as it was shot. Apparently word got out about the location. And Gus Van Zandt's big word of directorial advice to Robin was, just keep talking. (laughs) So I imagine at least a decent amount of that scene was improvised. In classic fashion, Robin Williams performed an impromptu stand-up set for the onlookers that were watching the scene being shot and just random attendees who were in the park eating their sandwiches that day. And following his death in August 2014, the bench became a makeshift shrine for fans. Wow, that's crazy. He's been gone for almost 10 years. I don't like thinking about that. I still remember where I was. Oh, me too. Yeah, that was almost like a JFK level, like, oh my God, or like, I mean, I I wasn't alive when John Lennon was shot, but like that level, like, Jesus. Oh, Um, yeah, we don't really have a good segue for this next part. Uh, It's especially personal for me, as I mentioned, Uh, this movie introduced me to Elliot Smith, as I'm sure it did for a lot of people, uh, because he was not so much of a known quantity before this. He was kind of a heat miser wasn't huge, and I don't think he had really kind of escaped the indie circles but um yeah i mean this and not even 10 years later uh the soundtrack to goodwill hunting scored by danny elfman how do you feel about that <laughs> very uncharacteristic very weird when i like it's funny that it's not that. like it's funny that it's not like full of his like obnoxious like augmented, carnival stuff and yeah dog, augmented diminished harmonies and like his yeah <laughs> Somebody get their head bashed in in Southie, like like a, a pipe organ. <laughs> it's not my fault. 
Oh yeah, Danny Elfman, what a weirdo. <laughs> He's like weirdly That's ripped. Him, like slamming the the phone number on the window to like that. <laughs> Just the Oingo Boingo songs. Yeah. <laughs> Gus Van Sant was like, I really want. Uh, He's talking to the editor. He's like, have you heard of this band Oingo Boingo? <laughs> uh, the soundtrack. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, Gus Van Sant knew Elliot Smith's stuff from Portland. Um, as we mentioned earlier, he had one of his music in the film that he shot before this, which is called To Die For, but ultimately decided to go for uh, a heavy metal score, but was so taken with Elliot's work that he told Goodwill Hunting's editor uh, to which songs he wanted to use before they even started production and before they'd even cleared the songs. Um, he said, uh, I think even before we started shooting, I was thinking in terms of Elliot's music, but I didn't know until finally we were able to put it together whether it was going to work. That was the plan. And I told Pietro Scalia, the film's editor, to use Elliot's music. In the script, it had mentioned that there was world music and he was trying to make that happen. But we just went ahead and used Elliot's music instead. What do you think that means? Like rusted root. <laughs> oh my god! Well, I mean, it was in Matilda, like a year before. I was gonna say, uh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Son of a bitch, stole my line. Bing, boom, bing, 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 bing. That almost works. Car driving off into the misty distance yeah. near Berkshire. I would like to reach out my, yeah. my I'm very oh, impressed with that. Can you give me? Okay, give me a oh, rusted root duetting with Kate Bush. Um, is that or Dave Matthews band? Can you imagine that? Ants marching. (laughs) Uh, anyway, (laughs) sorry. Go on. We we um we rigged up our phones once to have them go off every 20 minutes from four in the morning until like six in the morning with this guy that we knew and they would all, and they would go off playing dance marching. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God. Yeah. Oh man. Anyway, uh, (laughs) Danny Elfman told tape op last year in 2022 sitting with, Elliot and Gus Van Sant in the basement of Gus's house is still one of the greatest treats I've had. I remember heading out to see Gus in Boston and he goes, look, I know this seems odd, but I'm going to give you a tape. Do you know who Elliot Smith is? At that point, I hadn't been aware of him. He goes, I think this will be the only artist in the score for the songs. And I'd like to get your opinion and soak that up. I listened and it totally made sense. It was such a rare treat. Usually songs are dropped in at the end. When I'm scoring, I don't even know what they are until I go to the premiere because they've changed 10 times. Here, I was able to take the score and make it go rather seamlessly into the song and back into the score. Van Sant took a copy of Goodwill Hunting to his house to watch it with Smith, uh, who loved it instantly and not only gave his permission to use all of the previously released songs for it, but wanted to write an original, which ended up being Miss Misery. And that song was nominated for an Oscar nomination. Uh, And as I mentioned earlier, one of the more indelible uh, 90s Oscar memories is a pretty uncomfortable looking Elliot Smith in a what is a beautiful white suit uh, performing Miss Misery um, with an orchestra and uh, then subsequently losing as many did that year to your beloved large boat, Um, specifically. My heart will go on the 
love theme from Large Boat. Elliot Smith later called his Oscar nomination shocking and essentially had to be strong-armed into performing an abridged version of the song as part of the ceremony after the producers more or less told him, we're going to do it, and if you don't want to, we'll find somebody else. God, who would they have gotten in 96? 98. It would have been February 98. Sorry, February 98. Who would they have gotten? Let's see. Darius Rucker. (laughs) Dave Matthews. Savage Garden. (laughs) Usher. Will Smith. (laughs) Will Smith was hit number one after My Heart Will Go On. Really? I'll fake it through the day with some help. From Johnny Walker Red. Send the poison brain down the drain to put bad thoughts in my head. For somebody that you hate this much, I'm surprised how many lyrics you know of his. No, that was that was the line uh uh that was from Waltz number two. Uh <laughs> I think. I, I was just listening to this earlier today. F- no, it is Miss Misery. I'll fake it through the day with some help from Johnny Walker. Send the poison brain down the drain to put bad thoughts in my Elliot Smith rules. He's another one I remember, like where I was when I heard he died. I wasn't really all that aware of like pop culture stuff at that time. I have to like, imagine you like him a lot because he's basically the Beatles. <laughs> it's basically garage, like DIY depressive. Baby Britain, I really liked. Uh, yeah, I liked all the stuff. I liked when he played piano or He's electric a guitar. Great guitar stuff. player, man. I still well, can't yeah. play like Angelis. He did a oh, great man. cover of Care of Cell 44 by the Zombies. It was have really you heard good. Of because? Oh, yeah. Was that yeah. I Am Sam soundtrack? It must have been. He would do it live, too. Um, Whoa. I just, I mean, yeah, man. That finger picking in Angelis is amazing. Um, What's the. Uh, that like great electric guitar, oh oh so slow. That's a great track. Oh, so much fawning. Um, among the other, among the objections that the Oscars had were um, to uh, Smith sitting down to play, uh, which, as everyone knows, is God's preferred method of playing. They wanted him to stand, um, and the, this depressive drug addicted ex-punk from portland was sandwiched on the oscars between celine dion and michael bolton uh he later described the experience as surreal and ridiculous but he said at a certain point i threw myself into it because it seemed to make my friends happy i walked out and jack nicholson was sitting about six feet away so i avoided that area and looked up at the balcony in the back and sang the song imagine you're elliot smith you're probably Probably starting at Jones at this point. Mm. You just look up, you see a not amused Jack Nicholson in sunglasses, just staring at you. Oh, he's probably very amused. He always just has a permanent smile, just like on his face. Yeah, well, Jack Nicholson's probably also stoned. No, yeah, um, yes, I mean, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. He probably thought he was like courtside at the Lakers at that very moment. <laughs> this was a really good movie. Elliot Smith told Entertainment Weekly in 1998 before adding, I don't have much interest in branching out into soundtracks in general, though. Uh, He did mention that he enjoyed working with Danny Elfman and the 80-piece orchestra, Riley commenting, I was surrounded by perfectly tuned notes instead of my normally untuned guitar. (laughs) Uh, Danny Elfman told Tape Op, he had actually a really funny anecdote about the Oscars thing. 
He said that uh, Elliot called him and said, Danny, I'm at rehearsal and it's not going well. Bill Conti. Does that name ring any bells for you, Jordan? That sounds familiar, but I, I He's don't. He's the guy who wrote Gonna Fly Now, the theme from Rocky, Ro- and also The Karate Kid. Cool. <laughs> that was who the Academy Awards tapped to do an arrangement of Miss Misery. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> that, if you need a, I, I can't think of a more perfect image of Oscar's cluelessness than being like, hmm, yes, finely wrought, deeply emotional, melodic singer-songwriter. Who can we get to orchestrate his big Oscar-nominated original song? Rocky guy. Rocky guy. So Bill Conti of Gonna Fly Now fame did the arrangement, and Elliot Smith called Danny Elfman in a panic. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Danny Elfman says he he said, oh, so when do you need something by? And Elliot goes, tomorrow. <laughs> so Danny Elfman, God love him, banged out an arrangement in a day and sent him the music. Anyway. Matt Damon told Cinema Blend in 2017 that he hasn't rewatched Goodwill Hunting uh, since the deaths of Elliot Smith and Robin Williams. And then the other thing that he added was the uh, publicizing and subsequent trial of Harvey Weinstein for his um, years of sexual assault. So, sorry, Matt. And also a slightly less publicized detail, Harvey Weinstein was also a jerk to Robin Williams as a result of Goodwill Hunting. Uh, Goodwill Hunting was released nationwide on December 5th, 1997. Costing just a paltry $10 million, it brought in a truly astounding $225.9 million worldwide, which is like Marvel DCU stats these days. It's crazy. It could have made more at the box office were it not for some underhanded maneuvering from Harvey Weinstein. Numerous people, including Kevin Smith, have said that Robin Williams had a back-end deal where if this movie made more than a certain amount, I think it was $150 million domestically, that Robin would get a higher percentage of the gross. So Harvey yanked it out of theaters when it was at $138 million to screw Robin out of his higher percentage. Kevin Smith later said, I remember when Goodwill Hunting was leaving theaters and it felt weird because it was like, wait, there's all this Oscar buzz. So why would you pull it if it was just making money? And they did it because keeping it in theaters meant that more of the money would go to Robin. Whereas the moment it went to video, the split wasn't Robin heavy. It was hamstrung because of greed. Awesome. In addition to making lots of money, Goodwill Hunting also wrapped up a truly impressive nine Oscar nominations, including ones for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Matt Damon, and Best Actress for Minnie Driver, among several others. Most of the awards, unfortunately, well, fortunately for me, were snatched up by my beloved Large Boat movie. But Robin Williams won his one and only Oscar, which is criminal, for Best Supporting Actor. And he kicked off his speech with an amazing opener. For the first time in my life, I think I may be speechless. <laughs> <laughs> I, for some reason, I like rewatch that speech like, I don't know, like once a year for some reason. Hmm. And I, it's so great. Uh, very touching speech. Uh, he thanks everyone from uh, Harvey Weinstein uh, uh, hmm. to Matt and Ben to his late father. But he forgot to thank his mother who was sitting hmm. next to him in the auditorium that night. An oversight that haunted him for the rest of his life. (laughs) And I guess when Robin won his Oscar for the supporting role, he sent the guy who dubbed his voice in Good Will Hunting in German named Pierre Augustusinki, a small replica of the Oscar statue with a note saying, thank you for making me famous in Germany. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, most famously, Matt and Ben won Best Screenplay, which lent a whole Hollywood-style ending to the whole affair. You know, two childhood friends wearing gifted tuxedos, bringing their moms to the Oscars, you know, making their scrappy friends back home proud. Played very well in the press, and the award was presented to them by another famous cinematic duo, Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon, the odd couple, which I think is very cute. Ben was 25, Matt was 27, and Matt would later grumble, Ben's still the youngest writer to ever win an Oscar for screenwriting. I'd be the youngest if it wasn't for Ben. F***ing ass. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? That display of ball-busting male friendship, I think, is the perfect place to leave it for today. Both Matt and Ben went on to fulfill their respective destinies in Hollywood. Ben with Armageddon and Matt in Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. And actually, the Oscars had the added bonus of pissing off Steven Spielberg, who because he wanted Matt Damon to retain his all-American everyman anonymity for the movie. Spielberg later admitted, Who knew he was going to go off and become a movie star overnight and win the Academy Award for Best Screenplay and not be the anonymous actor I had in mind? So, sorry, Spielberg. <laughs> but Matt Damon always seemed to keep a pretty good head despite his stardom. He frequently would say that one of the upsides of winning the Oscar so young was that it taught him very early that that didn't fill any sort of inner void and that accolades really weren't the answer. And he remained self-deprecating about his creative partnership with Ben Affleck, later saying, if you put us together, you might actually make a whole creative, interesting individual. <laughs> they did Dogma with Kevin Smith soon after the success of Good Little Hunting, but they wouldn't write together until the 2021 historical drama The Last Duel, directed by Ridley Scott, which focuses on the last legally sanctioned duel in France's history. And I guess an early version of that script had Matt and Ben's character kiss because in those ceremonies you'd kiss everyone on the mouth for a duel. But Ridley Scott cut the scene because he thought it would distract from the rest of the movie. Coward. Yeah, I know. Seriously. I honestly have no memory of the last duel and truthfully didn't know that it existed until researching this episode. Um, oh, people liked it. I think, it has, good, I think it has a good, uh, good reputation yeah. these days. But clearly, it did not have the impact of Goodwill Hunting, which is honestly probably an unrealistic expectation. And Matt Damon agreed. He said in 2013, I don't think there could ever be another movie that I felt that way about because of what it meant in our lives, because of that time in our life. Another movie couldn't occupy that much of my heart and soul at this point in my life. A movie could never change my life like that again. And most importantly, much like you and I, Matt and Ben remain dear friends. Ben Affleck said not too long ago, for a while we thought maybe we should chill and just do other stuff and not be Matt and Ben, Matt and Ben. But we have our company together and we're developing together. Matt lives down the street from me just like he used to. The only difference is that we have pools. <laughs> not bad for two kids from Boston. In the end, the real apples were the friends we made along the way. <laughs> Well, folks, thank you for listening to the 100th episode of Too Much Information. I'm Alex Hagel. And I'm still Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Too 
Which Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.